we're looking at this series called Bad Words, and we're looking at a couple of topics uh, that automatically, as soon as you hear it, you're going to be like, man, why did I come today? I definitely should have skipped this Sunday and come on a different week. Uh, but we're looking at topics that aren't bad in and of themselves, but they feel bad or they might feel a little, a little off limits because I feel like they're misunderstood. And today we are talking about evangelism, right? So everybody woke up this morning like, yes, I can't wait to go to church and talk about evangelism, right? Everybody loves evangelism. It's the greatest thing in the world. Okay, probably not. Um, but I, I think that most of us feel this way. We have this reaction, uh, not because evangelism is a bad thing, but because we really, really, really misunderstand it. So what's the first thing that you think about when you hear the word evangelism? What's the first thing you think of? Uh, the first thing I think of, uh, I used to work in Gramercy, and every single day I would take the train, and I would get off at 42nd Street, and there was this dude, and it didn't matter the weather. Uh, he had on cowboy boots, black pants, and a trench coat. And he had his hair slicked back, trying to hide his bald spot. And he was screaming at everybody that came off the train about repenting, repent and turn to Jesus. And if that's evangelism, I don't want, I don't want no parts of that. Right? And some of us might think that evangelism is uh, like the Mormons. You wear the cutoff shirts and you wear a black tie and you ride your bike around and you, and you start awkward conversations with strangers. Right? Or it's like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Saturday morning and you got to knock on somebody's door, and the last thing you want to do is put your bowl of Captain Crunch down and start talking to somebody about God, like, all right, all right, listen, dude, it gets soggy, and once it gets soggy, it gets weird, so let's just, let's just end this immediately. Right, so these are the first couple of things that we think of uh, when we hear the word evangelism, and I got some good news uh, for you guys. I'm not going to spend the next 20 minutes making you feel guilty about not doing any of that, all right? I talked for 30 minutes, so I got an extra 10 on top of that to add to, make, to, add to your guilt. No, I, I, my, my goal today, and I'll say this from the, from the outset, my goal today is to turn each and every one of you into people that when you hear the word evangelism, you love the topic, that we can redefine it in such a way that it fits your life completely, and it's not something that becomes a bad word. It's not something that is taboo. It's not something that you would run away from or, or, or want to leave church immediately, but it's something that you can embrace, and it can make sense in your life. So what is evangelism? Evangelism is very simple. It's uh, Christians talking about their faith with others and them inviting them in to embrace faith for themselves, right? So Christians talking about their faith with others, and then inviting them to embrace faith for themselves. Now, in New York, in a place like this, in a place like Harlem, uh, we live by a, a mantra that's basically summed up in two words. It's called, do you, right? So the reason evangelism is so difficult in our minds, uh, one, because we have a really bad definition, and two, because we live in a time where everybody believes that, listen, whatever you do, as long as it makes you happy, do you. Do you, boo-boo. Don't worry about nobody else, right? And it's, and it's offensive. Like, listen, if Jesus works for you, great. I'm very happy. If Jesus works for you, fantastic. But please do not try to shove your faith. Please do not try to shove your morals. Please do not try to shove your way of life on me, right? So a lot of us grew up in churches, uh, or we might, uh, our exposures to this word evangelism um, left us feeling pretty awkward, uh, in one way, 
uh, we, we've heard about it in, in, in senses that people who create surveys or talk to random strangers, and it feels very awkward and, and very contrived, and it doesn't feel like it fits uh, the way we live life. But on the other hand, you can feel kind of guilty because you feel like, yeah, Jesus probably wanted me to do this, but I'm not doing it, so what is, what is the happy medium? So Gloria just read a scripture a little while ago that I hope uh, will put some flesh on the skeleton of what we're talking about. And it comes from Colossians. It should be back on the screen. Um, and I, and I want to hopefully redefine what, the way we think about evangelism. So uh, verse 2, it says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open up a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, in this scripture, uh, I believe Paul is saying some things very clearly, right? That there are some people, uh, some people who are gifted and who are called to be evangelists. And Paul puts himself in that camp. And for those people who are gifted and who are skilled and who are called to be evangelists, Paul gives us all an instruction. He says to pray for us, right? He says, pray that I may have an opportunity to preach the gospel. Secondly, pray that I'll be bold enough to take advantage of that opportunity. And thirdly, uh, pray that when I am speaking and teaching and talking about Jesus, that I'll do it clearly. But for the rest of us, the majority of us, Paul turns around and he gives a far different instruction, right? Paul doesn't turn around and say, hey, and for everybody here, I pray that you're bold, and I pray that you have opportunities, and I pray that you go out and talk about Jesus. Paul doesn't say that. Uh, my belief, I think that what Paul is saying to us in Scripture is that the majority of us, the vast majority of us are never called to go and strike up a conversation with a stranger, that the vast majority of us are, are never called to go on the street and pass out a tract of literature to somebody, that the vast majority of us are not called to be evangelists, but rather we are called to do what? To give an answer to everybody that asks, right? So he gives us a couple of instructions. He says, first, pray that those who are called to be evangelists have those opportunities. And then he turns to us. He says, listen, now for us, I want you to be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. I want you to make the most out of every single opportunity and I want you to make sure your conversation is full of grace so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, I don't think that Paul thinks that we're all evangelists. I don't think that Paul thinks that we're all supposed to go out and start talking about Jesus to strangers. And I think uh, the Apostle Peter agrees with Paul in uh, 1 Peter 3 and 15. It says, uh, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to do what? To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you the reason, to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, what Peter and Paul are saying is this: that the majority of us don't have to try to put our foot in every single door. The majority of us don't ever have to worry about having that awkward conversation with a stranger. For the majority of us, uh, the way that the primary way that we will proclaim and, and talk about Jesus will be in response to somebody's question. Now, this implies something great. This implies something fantastic. It implies that me and you are living a life worth questioning. That we are living a life that's questionable. Not like 
questionable, like that dude is kind of sketchy, right? But a life that is so dope, a life that is so countercultural that people will stop and they will ask you, what is the hope that lies within you? But here's, here, here's the problem with that, brothers and sisters. Here's the problem. Nobody's going to ask us questions if our lives are just like everybody else's, right? Like if we spend all of our time and money on things just like everybody else does, that's not a questionable life. If, if, we, if we jump in and out of every bed just like everybody else does, that's not a, that's not a questionable life. If, if our lives, if, if we go to work and we curse at our coworkers just like everybody else does, and we won't forgive people, and we, and we talk behind people's backs just like everybody else, brothers and sisters, that is, that's not a questionable life. That's not a life where people will look at you and ask you what the hope is within you. And what God is calling me and you to do is not necessarily feel like you have to strike up a conversation with a stranger, but to live a life worth questioning. For us to live a life worth questioning. Peter and Paul, two of the most responsible men for the early teaching of the church and spreading the gospel, will tell you that don't worry about uh, passing out the survey. Don't worry about standing next to the dude, the Jerry Curl, talking about Jesus. You and I have to live questionable lives. Lives where your coworkers would, at, would look at your life. And this is without you wearing a Jesus t-shirt and playing gospel music at work. Right? That they would look at your life and they would say, man, yo, something is, I don't know what's up with, with him or her, but yo, that's kind of dope the way she's living, living her life. That's kind of dope the way dude is living his life. That Oh, he really does that? Man, I wonder why he's living like that right, to our students, to our, to our kids, that your classmates would look at you, and without you uh, broadcasting stuff on Facebook or hitting share for those, uh, you know, Jesus loves me, share this in 10 seconds, or else you're going to go to hell, quotes. <laughs> Don't ever share those. Don't share them on my wall either, because I'm not posting it. Right, so without having to do all these different things that people would just know from your life, without you broadcasting it, that they would just look at your lives, and they would ask you these questions. So what does it look like for, for Christians to, to live a life uh, worth questioning? For the first couple of, of weeks we've been here, uh, we've been looking at the early church in, in different ways throughout the book of Acts and in different places. And we've seen a couple of things that were pretty remarkable about the early church. Uh, and this is one book by a man named Rod, Rodney Stark. It's called The Rise of Christianity. And in this book, uh, Rodney Stark uh, really talks about how Christianity went from a handful of people, right? So Christianity probably started with less people that are in this room right now, right? So how did it go from a handful of people to literally overthrowing the Roman Empire? And Rodney Stark is not a Christian, but he has uh, a, a number of theories. And if you're into reading, this is a really good book. I read half of it. I'm not going to lie. So I read the whole thing, right? I read enough to preach this. That, I, I, had to be, I had to be vulnerable on that one. Right, so how did the Christian uh, movement uh, really start? Um, so there's a couple of things that the Christians were doing that uh, the, the movement didn't grow because people uh, heard really great sermons like, yo, this dude is a dope preacher. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was actually a pretty weak preacher. Uh, some of the churches his, and their complaints against him, they're like, yo, we saw the dude. He's not that impressive. He's short. Uh, he's, you know, he has a bad haircut. Like, there's a lot of things about Paul that weren't too impressive. So it wasn't on the backs of, like, these amazing personalities 
Uh, it was in that they lived such questionable lives that people were so attracted to the Jesus movement that they had to know what is it that's causing you to live like this, right? So case in point, uh, in uh, the Roman Empire, uh, there was about 140 males for every 100 women. And any statistician will tell you that that's definitely skewed because um, there's, you know, the way uh, birth works, I guess, is more girls than, than boys, right? So for there to be 140 uh, males to every 100 women, that meant uh, that something weird was happening. And what they were doing in the Roman Empire was called female infanticide. So that they would, you know, there was no ultrasounds that could say it's a boy or a girl. Um, once a baby was born, if, if it was a girl, sometimes they would just take the baby and throw it away. Literally, take the baby and chuck it. Now what the Christians were doing, instead of uh, of tossing their babies, not only were they keeping the girls and, and giving them value, they were adopting and, and creating orphanages for the girls that had been discarded from their own parents. Right? In a, in a society where everybody uh, treats women like trash, a culture that lives counterculturally is worth questioning. Now, this devaluing of women didn't stop at, at, at birth. Uh, women that were of marriage age had to be married. Um, and not only did you have to be married, but you had to completely and fully submit to your husband. And no matter what he did, right? So husbands were allowed to have three or four mistresses and different wives and all those other things. But women were only allowed to have just their one husband. But in the Christian circles, they said none of that. Husbands, you submit to your wives and love them. Have just one wife. Now, in a culture where uh, womanizing was rampant, the Christians living counterculturally saying, no, 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 we have one wife and we're going to submit to her. We're going to love her like she's my own body. Man, that's a life, that's a life worth questioning. Later, uh, it talks about how uh, Christians cared for uh, the poor and those who were less fortunate. And it says uh, this guy named uh, Julian, Julian uh, the apostate, uh, he wrote a letter complaining. He was an emperor in, in Rome and he wrote a letter to one of his officials complaining about the Christians. And basically, this is what he wrote. He says, uh, our religion, they had a pagan, like, Roman religion. He says, our religion is not prospering, but the Christian religion is growing and growing. Why don't we realize how much Christianity's success is due to their radical care for the poor? Christians do not just take care of their own poor. They take care of the pagan poor as well, whereas it is obvious for everyone that our poor lack even stuff from us. So basically, Julian was saying this, right? Africans took care of the African poor. Jewish people took care of the Jewish poor. Romans took care of some of the Roman poor. But the Christians, they're taking care of everybody's poor. And that's a life worth questioning. Why are you doing that? And this is probably the, the last thing that, to me, blows my mind. In uh, AD 165, um, AD 165, there was a plague. And this plague broke out in about uh, one-fourth uh, to a third, a quarter to a third of the population died. So it would be like in New York City, two million people dying in a couple of months, right? So this was a serious, uh, serious plague. They didn't have quarantines, they didn't have good health care, and everybody started to dip, right? Everybody right now is running from Ebola. Everybody's scared. I saw like two people walking in with masks on today. If somebody has Ebola in Hamilton Heights or something. But in, in this time where everybody was, was terrified for their lives, and everybody was, was fearful, and nobody wanted to be near them, uh, the Christians, instead of leaving town, they were going back into the city to take care of the people that were dying. That's crazy. 
Now, at the risk of their own life, and for some of them, the cost of their own lives, they went in and they went after people, and they loved people, and they cared for people that could have gotten them sick and killed them, and sometimes did. Now, you want to know why Christianity grew? You want to know what evangelism is? You want to know what something that's a powerful witness that would make somebody stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you doing this? It's living a life worth questioning. And, and, and looking at this early community and looking what they did, I mean, come on. I make my wife carry hand sanitizer. I'm a germaphobe. I can't, I don't even touch, I won't even shake your hand after we got off the subway. I'm, it would be impossible for me to do something like that. Uh, but to me, that is a shocking thing, that they would risk their lives to do this. Now, what would make a people group live like this? What would make them live so radically, so counterculturally, uh, so inclusively that they would risk their own lives, that they would take care of the poor, that they would voluntarily give up power so that they can serve other people? I think uh, they were digging from a, from a different well, that ultimately they had a far different source of their value. They had a far different source of, of, of what really mattered to them. Now, salvation is not necessarily... Uh, salvation in our own minds is what we run to to make us feel significant. The, uh, what we run to to make us feel uh, significant. And my belief is that these people had a far different well, a far different source of what actually gave them value than a lot of times what we have, right? A far different source than what we have uh, in terms of giving us value. And the reason that uh, we don't live uh, lives that are worth questioning is because we, we have different values and, and different sources, right? So T.D. Jakes once said this one quote, he said that quick solutions are never good for complicated problems. Quick solutions are never good for complicated problems, right? So what I'm not going to tell you today is, hey, go out and just do something. I don't care what it is. Just do something that sounds kind of sketchy and sounds really radical, and you'll be really good on your own, right? That's a quick solution, and it doesn't solve a complicated problem. The problem is a whole lot deeper than that, right? So like if you wanted, if you wanted lemons and you had a couple of trees on your, on, your, on your property, like we all own property in Harlem, right? Everybody owns <laughs> a couple of acres of lemon trees, right? So if you wanted lemons from a tree, what you cannot do is go to an apple tree, take off all the apples and duct tape some lemons to the branches. Like you can't do that, right? If you, wanna, if you want lemons, you have to go to the source. You have to go to the roots, and you have to plant something that is fundamentally different than an apple tree, that is fundamentally going to produce lemons. Now, for us, what is that? For us, what is going to produce this deep uh, uh, change? I think it's nothing other than meditating and living a life uh, surrounded around the gospel. And the reason these, this early church was able to risk their lives was because their hope and their significance wasn't in their own health, right? They knew that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then he surely was going to raise them with him. And what they had coming in the next age was better than what they had in the, in the, in the present age. They didn't have to worry about giving their money away because their, their stability, their significance, wasn't in how much money they had in the bank. It was in a God that they knew would provide. They knew that God would provide because if he gave them Jesus, then surely he would give them everything else. Their security... The thing that made them feel significant wasn't in how many women they can have. It was in God, so the men had no problem being the husband of one wife. And for us, my dream and my prayer is that everybody in this church will start to live a life 
That's worth questioning. Right? That when you go to work, that you wouldn't see the money that you make as a thing that is most significant about you. That you wouldn't uh, see the number of zeros or lack thereof in your bank account as a thing that makes you feel comfortable and stable. But that you would trust Jesus, that if God gave you Jesus, he will give you everything else. He will take care of you. You don't have to worry. Whether or not you're in the relationship that you want to be in, whether or not Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright has come along, you can trust that a God that gave you Jesus Christ will not uh, withhold any good thing from you. We have different sources of happiness. So what does this look like in our lives? Uh, I want to select a couple of stories from the community. Uh, Renaissance, we've, we've, we've done, a great deal, done a great deal of work to, to really make sure that we reflect the community in, in diversity. But if you walk down the street, you'll see different faces, but the different faces don't necessarily talk to each other. Right, so a couple of months ago, my wife and I were out, and we were like on, on 8th, I think like right in front of Mocha, right? And um, we got there, and there was another couple that we saw, it was a white couple, and we gave them a big hug and, and, and dapped them up. And these people were looking at us like, yo, how do they know each other? Right, because in, 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 a, in a neighborhood as diverse as this one even is, there's one group of people that go to Mocha, and there's another group of people that go to Vinatoria. And those two paths don't ever cross, am I lying? And those two paths don't ever cross. But there are some places that if you're from Harlem, you go there. And some places, if you just moved here from the Midwest, you go there. <laughs> but you want to know what's a questionable life? When people see you having real, sincere relationships with people that don't look like you, act like you, think like you, smell like you, talk like you. Then people will start to say, man, there has to be something that's going on. What would make these two people that have no business hanging out actually hang out? And not just hang out just because it, you know, it looks cool on the surface, but that you would really have deep relationships with these people. In our community group uh, that just launched uh, two weeks ago, we have people from literally all over the world, and it, and it hasn't happened yet. So I'm not going to say it's happened already, but it hasn't happened yet. But there are people in this room that are from all over the world, and they will become family in Jesus Christ. And when they see somebody from Europe and somebody from the Bronx come together in real family, Trust me, that is a questionable life. My brothers, can I pick on my brothers for a second? It is not uh, a questionable life to just go around and date everybody just like everybody else does in the city. To have a laundry list of women, to have your roster of, of five or six women that you, that you deal with. But you want to know what's a questionable life? To date one woman and to court her and to value her and to, tell, and to live a life that you're not even going to have sex with her until you get married. Trust me, I know from personal experience, people will ask you why you're not. I know that to be extremely true. That's a questionable life. Last Friday, man, my heart is still so overwhelmed and blown away. Uh, there was a Young Life uh, club, and shout out to Young Life, everybody in here from that. Young Life is an organization. There we go. That was kind of weak. Y'all could have done better than that, but... So this is, Young Life is an organization that basically focuses on uh, talking to teens, ministering to teens, introducing them to Jesus, and helping them grow in their faith. And I, and I watched as adults gave up their Friday nights, gave up their Friday nights and have given up so much more than just a Friday night to invest in these kids' lives. There are some people that, uh, you know, one of my friends, I won't even call him out, his name rhymes with Raylib and uh, starts with a C. But... Um, <laughs> So my boy Caleb, right? So Caleb is a, is a wildlife 
volunteer. And Caleb didn't grow up like Eminem and 8 Mile either. You know what I'm saying? Like, he didn't grow up like that. Caleb um, is a white Carlton Banks, so I don't, how, I don't know how that reconciles, but it's the best example I had on the fly. But Caleb has given up not just his, and he'd be, he's probably mad at me for saying this, but he has given up so much more than just a random night to invest in a kid's life over and over and over again that he wakes up early and he did tutoring at PS 180 to invest in these kids' lives so that Jesus would be formed in them. Now, instead of living a life where all of your time and all of your energy is all about you, when you can just say, uh, I'm investing my time and energy into, into these kids that I don't even uh, naturally uh, have too much in common with, man, that's, that's a questionable life. In a, in a city where we're so fast-paced and nobody has time for anybody else to stop and to invest in someone else other than, your else, other than yourself, man, that is, that is a questionable life. And my prayer for all of us, should you accept this challenge, is to do this. Live a questionable life. Let's pray. Father, I am uh, grateful for the people here in this room for the, for the amazing people that, that have gone out of their way um, to be here today to serve. God, the people that have listened through and, and wrestled internally with what's going on. Father, I pray that, that slowly but surely we become a people. God, it doesn't have to happen overnight, but slowly but surely we become the type of people that people ask us about our faith. That we start to live lives that organically People start to question, what is it that, what type of hope do we have living on the inside of us? God, that we would be people that can live recklessly because we have a different source of our hope and a different source of our significance. Father, I pray that you would, you would bless us all. You would make us feel welcomed in to what you're doing, God. Not that we have to try to earn anything, but we would feel welcomed in to take a step closer to you and that we would trust you a little bit more. Father, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.